here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. It's Larry O'Connor sitting in for Mark Levin today, 877-381-3811. I am coming to you direct from our nation's capital. That's right, knee deep in the swamp that is Washington, D.C. I'd love to hear from you on this, the Mark Levin Show, 877-381-3811. Well, nothing happened. That's the big story of the day is nothing happened. Yesterday, Chuck Todd, meet the press, getting all excited. He He's a very excitable young lad, isn't he? And he, he got himself just into a tizzy saying, I'm not going to miss work tomorrow. I'm going to make sure I'm here because Mueller's going to drop something. Big day tomorrow for the Mueller investigation. Mueller's going to drop something on Trump. Game changer. Can't wait for it. And, of course, nothing happened. Chuck Todd was wrong. There's a Dog Bites Man headline for you. Why did they think everything was going to happen today? Why were they in a tizzy? Why was this town on pins and needles just waiting? Well... Uh, the big reason is that there's a, this supposed tradition in the Department of Justice where if an investigation has political ramifications, political overtones, they never want to have anything major happen between Labor Day and Election Day on an election year. And, of course, this Monday coming up is election is uh, Labor Day. This is the last working day before Labor Day, and they uh, if you take tradition out. Now, me, my memory is that there have been plenty of things that have happened between Labor Day and Election Day that negatively affected Republicans before Election Day. So, I, I, frankly, I'm not buying the premise. But but just for the sake of argument, let's just let's just freeze the Mueller investigation right here. Let's just let's just freeze everything and say we are where we are. And nothing significant is going to happen between now and Election Day. How's that work out for Republicans? If, if nothing major happens between today and Election Day, other than, you know, your occasional leak, which will be distorted and, and Trump will smack it down and will actually, you know, we had one of those today, by the way. I'll, I'll tell you about that one in a minute. It was like a game of telephone tag on this. The, the, the big story of the day was Bruce Orr, no, actually, I'm, I, should, I should start here. An anonymous congressman told the media that Bruce Orr told them that Christopher Steele told him that an anonymous Russian told him that they had Trump over a barrel. That was the news story. That was breaking news with the gong and the graphics and Wolf Blitzer looking really serious like this is the brink of impeachment. That an anonymous congressman leaked to the media that Bruce Orr told them that Christopher Steele told him that an anonymous Russian told him that they had Trump over a barrel. So that kind of thing is going to happen between now and Election Day. But if nothing major, if no indictments, no plea deals, no, you know, finally a getting a sentencing or uh, for General Flynn or maybe even his case thrown out, which I think could very well happen. If nothing major happens between now and Election Day, let's say Election Day is tomorrow and the Mueller investigation is exactly as it is right now. Do Republicans keep the majority in the House? Or is or is there enough generated right now in the media? Has there been enough misreporting, fake news 
uh, ridiculous assertions and enough of a of a a seed planted in the minds of the American voter who, who let's face it I'm not saying that they're that they're not intelligent I'm not saying that that they're not diligent voters I'm saying your average voter is not like you your average voter is not plugged in and reading every little scintilla of news about this stuff the way you are. And I don't fault them for that. I think they actually have probably a more normal and fulfilling life. Uh, Is there enough of a seed planted right now with the average voter that they will actually give the Democrats a majority that moves to impeachment? I'm I'm interested. I'm curious what your opinion is. 877-381-3811. If the election were held tomorrow, do the Republicans keep their majority or are we moving toward Im- impeach 45 as as Maxine Waters, the soon to be chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, would say impeach 45. By the way, that's the ad that needs to be made. Hey, forget about me, this lowly Republican, your congressman in this district. I mean, I've served you. I've done a pretty good job. Let's face it. Republicans on Capitol Hill aren't the most popular people. In the country right now, and you may not like me as your representative, but just understand something. If you don't reelect me, here's your new chairwoman of the House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters. And then just play about 30 seconds of Maxine Waters. I think that's an effective ad right there. I I think you may change some minds right there. Maybe some of the Fed sitters might might, okay, fine. Two more years for you. Because that's what we get. That's what we'll get. Uh, what do you think? Uh, I'll give you my impressions on where we stand right now with Robert Mueller, but I do want to hear from you. 877-381-3811. By the way, just reintroduction real fast because people are joining all the time. I'm Larry O'Connor. I'm filling in for Mark Levin. I'm actually on uh, Mark's uh, home station in Washington, D.C., WMAL, the mighty WMAL, uh, where I do the program right before Mark Levin. So it's uh, it's a great honor to to be in that position, of course. And so I, I cover this stuff in a pretty detailed way. I'm also the associate opinion editor at The Washington Times there with uh, with my boss, Charlie Hurt, who I, I know, you know, from uh, multiple television appearances on Fox News and his writing at The Washington Times. So I've been covering this story quite a bit. In fact, just yesterday, I interviewed Carter Page, Carter Page, the focus of the FISA warrant, the fake, phony, fraudulent FISA warrant that the FBI and the Justice Department was able to uh, get from the FISA court by lying, by misrepresenting, by withholding key information from the judges that granted the warrant. I I interviewed Carter Page, the man who was spied on by your federal law enforcement officials under the direction of James Comey, Loretta Lynch, and ultimately President Barack Obama. And I got to tell you something, if this man is a Russian agent, then, in my opinion, we're not really going to have any problem with Vladimir Putin, if this is the best they can do. Because the guy, he's a nice guy. He's a very smart guy. He's a United States Naval Academy graduate. He was a, a an officer in the United States Navy, including an intelligence officer. And, you know, there, there's three ways you can get into the Naval Academy, right? My, my daughter's on this path right now. She's a senior in high school, and she's walking down that road man she's done a whole bunch of stuff to get into the naval academy she's got her application in. she's working on the congress letter right now all that stuff here's how you get in you're either a division one athlete and they're recruiting you because they want you on their team right to beat army thank you very much or you're uh, a legacy right your dad was an admiral or, or or your grandpa 
was you know the representative for the United States Navy on the uh, chief of staffs there, right? Or, or you got some kind of legacy, or or your your dad or your grandfather actually went to the Naval Academy, right? And, and by the way, I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that it's incredible that we have this great tradition in America where generation after generation in a family will uh, bring their best and brightest to the service academies and become officers in the in the United States Navy or the Army or where have you. Uh, your third route to the Naval Academy is you're just an incredible person. You're incredibly brilliant. You have great grades. You have great leadership qualities. You, you dedicate yourself to community service. You are the best of the best. You test well. You get the grades. You've got all the advanced courses in high school right now, all those AP classes. My daughter's got five AP classes right now. It's amazing. Um, let me tell you, Carter Page, the person who James Comey stood before a FISA court and said that he believes and has reason to believe is an agent for a foreign government who is hostile to the United States of America. Carter Page is is the latter of those three options. He is not a star athlete. He is not the son of a legacy member of the Naval Academy. He's just a really smart guy and a really good guy at the time he was brought into the Naval Academy. I've never met him personally, but you just don't get in. Unless you've got an incredible clean record. He was an Eagle Scout, literally an Eagle Scout. And this is the man that's now been targeted for spying. And and Carter Page has never been charged with the crime. After all this, I mentioned Carter Page on the air. I'll mention him on social media. I mentioned him on television, on my, one of my television appearances. And I'm sorry, I actually believe in innocent before proven guilty. I actually believe that you should give a person like this the benefit of the doubt. And I'll get inundated with people from the left, with media personalities saying, he is an agent for the Russian government. And the man has never been charged with a crime. He has never been convicted of a crime. He's never had to go to court to defend himself because there's never been any charge made against him. But they looked into every single one of his text messages, every single one of his emails. They listened in on his phone calls and not just from the moment they got that warrant forward, no, his understanding, and I asked him this yesterday in my interview with him, his understanding is that it was incredibly expansive, including emails, text messages, conversations that he had had months before they obtained their warrant. That's how this happens sometimes. And it was all about Russia, right? So where are the charges against him? We don't see him. In fact, most of the news that we've been getting in the last several months about this entire story paint a very different picture than we were told the week before the presidential inauguration, right? Most of the news we've been getting have to do with the fact, and I know because you listen to the Mark Levin show, you know quite a bit about this, have to do with the fact that the the federal government, the Justice Department, the FBI, under the direction of Loretta Lynch and Barack Obama and James Comey, They instituted an unprecedented domestic surveillance investigation on innocent American citizens for the purposes of disrupting a presidential campaign. And, and, and I know a lot of arguments about this. I know a lot of people will say, well, well, if they were trying to give the campaign to Hillary and stop Trump from being president, they did a pretty lousy job of it, right? That's what you'll hear that all the time. And if that's the case, why did they decide to open up Anthony Weiner's emails in the final days before the election? Because that hurt Hillary more than anything. Right. You hear that all the time, don't you? I mean, why would they do all of this? Well, all right. I'll answer both of those questions. 
And I'll also bring your attention to the one thing that isn't really being focused on much, that people aren't talking about enough. The one thing in this entire fiasco that was revealed in the Inspector General's report two months ago that seems to have gone unnoticed. And that was the direct implication of President Barack Obama in all of this. I'll give you all of that in just a moment. And I do want to hear from you at 877-381-3811. We're sort of taking a moment here on this final day before Labor Day to reset the Mueller investigation, take our temperature as to where it stands right now, how it might affect the midterm elections, assuming that we don't have any big blockbusters between now and Election Day. And we're talking about the story within the story that people aren't focusing on. We'll give you all that here. On the Mark Levin Show. I'm Larry O'Connor sitting in for Mark Levin, 877-381-3811. Keep it right here. Mark Levin. It's Larry O'Connor sitting in for the great one, Mark Levin, from your nation's capital, Washington, D.C., knee-deep in the swamp. And, I, you know, I love talk radio. I love doing talk radio, obviously. It's the best job of my life. I, I know how lucky I am to do it. But I'm also a fan of talk radio, have been since I was a teenager. And one of the things I love about talk radio is that uh, the great hosts, like Mark Levin, they're able to uh, make concise and logical arguments that we can then use, regurgitate ourselves, sometimes word for word. He doesn't mind. Uh, and by we, I mean, you know, you and I on our Facebook pages or in our conversations with our liberal brother-in-law uh, or, or the guy who sits in the cubicle two slots down from you. You know the guys I'm talking about. Uh, you get into the arguments with them about politics. And when you listen to Mark Levin, you're able to, to understand the arguments. You can regurgitate it in your own words, but you can make a good case for conservative principles or events of the day. And I was talking about the Mueller investigation. I'm talking about uh, how we have learned now under James Comey, Loretta Lynch and Barack Obama exactly how uh, amok the Justice Department and the FBI was running during the 2016 campaign uh, in their failure to properly prosecute, literally prosecute the case against Hillary Clinton and in their unprecedented surveillance of the Trump campaign. And and you'll always hear a couple of arguments back to you when you try to make that case. Uh, one of them is, well, that was the case. They did a terrible job because Trump won. I mean, I, what do you make of that? And, and, you know, why did they go after Hillary's emails on Wiener's laptop right before the election? If they were in the tank for Hillary, why did they do that right before the election? All right, well, here's your answers, and they're very important. First of all, on, on the first question, there are two answers to that, and they're both valid and they're both correct. The first is, just because somebody attempts to do something atrocious, attempts to do something uh, unconstitutional, attempts to stop an election from going the way they they think it might be going just because they attempted to monkey with the election if i may use that term and help hillary clinton get elected and stop donald trump from getting elected and they failed that doesn't mean it's not a problem yes they attempted to do it their intention was to hurt trump their intention was to help hillary the fact of the matter is trump still won Despite that, that doesn't negate the outrageous thing that happened. But secondly, and I think even more importantly, 
I remind you of one of the more infamous Peter Strzok texts to his uh, paramour, Lisa Page. where he was, he was texting more than my teenage daughter does. And one of the text messages when she said, oh, my God, Trump's going to win. Trump's going to win. And, and, you know, he said, oh, no, we won't let it happen. But remember then he said that he wanted to follow up on that conversation they had in Andy's office. That would be Andrew McKay, the deputy director of the FBI at the time, whose wife was running as a Democrat in the state of Virginia and was funded by Terry McAuliffe's super PAC to the tune of like $400,000. I want to follow up on that conversation we had in Andy's office. For our insurance policy, in the event you should die, dot, dot, dot. Remember that? The insurance policy. And people oftentimes, I think, willfully misread that statement to suggest that the insurance policy was to keep Trump from winning the election. And it's quite the opposite. You you don't get an insurance policy on your car to keep yourself from getting in an accident. You don't get insurance policy on your life to keep yourself from dying. You get an insurance policy if you do get in the car accident. So what was the insurance policy? How does that relate to what we know happened? I'll explain in just a moment. I'm Larry O'Connor, filling in for Mark Levin. Mark Levin, America's passionately cerebral voice talk with that voice now 877-381-3811 i'm larry o'connor sitting in for the great one mark levin from washington dc 877-381-3811 if the Mueller investigation is pretty much frozen now between now and election day as conventional wisdom in this town suggests then what will it mean for the midterms? Blue wave, no blue wave, red tide. Will the Mueller investigations affect the new majority makeup in the House one way or the other? I'd love to hear from you. 877-381-3811. By the way, it's very rare that a guy like me gets the power and breadth and scope of the, the Mark Levin microphone and the mighty Mark Levin audience. So let me just take advantage of it just really quickly and say I actually like iceberg lettuce. There, I said it. I know it's controversial, but it's the best lettuce. We were talking about the Mueller probe and where things stand with uh, what happened there with Comey and and everything. And, And the question was about the insurance policy, the Peter Strzok insurance policy, where he texted to his gal pal there, Lisa Page, that he wants to pursue this idea of an insurance policy. You don't get an insurance policy to keep your car from getting in an accident. I want to thank Molly Hemingway, the great writer over at The Federalist. You know her from Fox News. She made this point so clear, and it's so smart, and and so, of course, I'm going to borrow it. The insurance policy was just that, an insurance policy, if you get into the accident, if your house burns down, if you die, if the worst of the worst happens, then what? How do you salvage that? How do you fix that? How do you repair that? What's the disaster in this scenario? What is what is the equivalent politically to the car accident, the house burning down, the fire? The disaster is Trump winning. Trump winning. If you look at the text message Peter Strzok said, he said, I, I agree with you. He's not going to win. But I want to pursue the conversation we had in Andy's office, Andrew McCabe. 
with regard to the insurance policy. So what was the insurance policy? You know, everyone said, well, if, if they did all of this to keep Trump from winning, they did an awful job. It wasn't just to keep Trump from winning. They all figured Trump was going to lose, but they wanted an insurance policy if he did win. And the insurance policy is this. If he wins, we need to have something on this guy so we can cripple him, so we can keep him from doing anything, so we tie him up through leaks, through innuendo, maybe even a special counsel eventually. Think about it. How'd that work out? And if you're working in the FBI, if you're James Comey, if you're Andrew McCabe, if you're Peter Strzok, and you assume Hillary Clinton's going to win, and you pursue this extraordinarily unconstitutional investigation on his campaign with surveillance and and spies. Yeah, I'll call him a spy because he was spying. You go through all of that. You've got two scenarios at the end of the day. When you wake up election the day after the election in November, Trump wins. Okay, we got this guy. We got him set up. We're going to cripple his presidency. And, well, look how things have gone. Or number two, if she wins, then on the first day of school, when Madam President takes the Oval Office, you're James Comey, you walk into her office and you say, Madam President, that was a really rough uh, campaign there. Trump was really nasty to you. All that lock her up stuff. All that stuff with with Bill's mistresses at the debate. That got ugly. That guy, I've never seen an uglier campaign than that. I'm just wondering, Madam President, would you like a little payback? Because uh, I want you to look in this folder. We've been working on something. It's called Crossfire Hurricane. little project that me and the boys put together during the campaign. Maybe you might want to pursue some of this. No one's ever going to really know about it. Would you, would you like to get back at Trump for all the things he said? Here, just, just look at what we got. And, of course, they didn't have anything, but because she was president and her attorney general was in charge and none of the stuff that has been revealed would have been revealed, well, they would have been able to manufacture whatever they wanted with the surveillance they obtained. And the other challenge you hear, by the way, is uh, why did if they, if they were against Hillary or excuse me, if they were against Trump and they were pro Hillary, then why did they screw everything up by looking into Anthony Weiner's laptop? and opening up the email investigation a week and a half before the election. It's a fair challenge. If you don't understand exactly what was happening there, the politics within the FBI, within the Justice Department, and if you haven't been paying attention to James Comey's own words. Uh, Now, number one, first of all, you respond and say, hey, you know, they had that information like a month before, and Comey told Peter Strzok not to pursue it. What happened was, weeks later... People within the FBI in New York who had uncovered it, they said, guys, what are you doing here? You still haven't investigated this. This is something you need to look at. These were patriotic members of the FBI and the DOJ who were ready to go public exposing the fact that they were sitting on it. That's why they waited to the last minute. And secondarily, Comey, in his own words, said that he thought Hillary was going to win. He made this decision based on the assumption that Hillary Clinton was going to win right there, by the way, should disqualify him as any kind of of a a blind arbiter of justice because he actually made decisions as the director of the FBI, assuming the outcome of a presidential election. That proves 
that he had some bias affecting his decisions. Not that he wanted her to win, but the fact that the decision was made based on the idea that she would win. That should be irrelevant. Whether you investigate a crime or not should be irrelevant with regard to whether the subject of that investigation is going to win an election or not. If there's a crime that needs to be investigated, you investigate the crime. Period. That, that's what we all understand justice to be in this country. But he said himself that he assumed she was going to win, and he was concerned about the appearance after the election if it were to be discovered that the FBI sat on this and didn't investigate it. So Comey was so sure she was going to win because apparently he just watched CNN that he thought, okay, fine, we got to do this because if we don't, it's going to be horrible and it's going to hurt Hillary Clinton after she wins the election. So let's just do this thing. We'll get it over with. It's not going to affect her anyway because, you know, she's going to win. And that's what happened. And that's the answer when you get challenged on these things. Because it's going to work, by the way, because it's the truth. And we do have the truth on our side. How do you think this is going to affect the election? Let's start with uh, Nick in Purcellville, Virginia, listening on the great WMAL. I'm Larry O'Connor, in for Mark Levin. What do you think? Well, Larry, uh, I don't know if you recall the chronological order of how things came down before the 2016 election, but... It was actually about a week before the election that that dossier came out in the news. And it didn't, I think nobody bought it. You know, so what I'm saying is that Comey cleared Hillary, like you're saying, Comey cleared Hillary and said, well, these crimes are, nobody will prosecute, prosecute these crimes. And then about a week before the election, the dossier came out. So that was the insurance policy, and it didn't work. You know, that's uh, that's my thought on it. I, I don't know right. if you remember, but that was my uh, recollection of how yeah. things came down before the I, election. I mean, the dossier, the, the news of the dossier trickled out via Mother Jones and via Yahoo News. It didn't make much of a splash because, again, this is this is an ironic thing here, Nick. And thank you for the call. Uh, this is the ironic thing. This thing was peddled for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks to CNN and The New York Times and The Washington Post. And I'm guessing all the networks. And frankly, I'm guessing probably... It appears, based on some pretty good reporting that's been done now, there's some conservative organs also got it. You, you, there, there, there's a Bill Crystal editorial from July 30th, 2016, that that there's no way Bill Crystal could have written this op-ed, in my opinion, over there at the Weekly Standard, without having been briefed on the on the dossier. Uh, and and they, but most news outlets did not take this Russian dossier and publish it and print it. Only Mother Jones and Yahoo in the final week reported some of the things about it. So think about that for a minute. From CNN's perspective, from NBC News and MSNBC's perspective, from the New York Times and Washington Post perspective, the dossier wasn't credible enough to report on publicly. But it was credible enough for the FBI to use in the FISA court to get a, a warrant on an American citizen to surveil. The New York Times and CNN had a higher standard than the FBI. That's a problem. Tom, uh, Don, excuse me, Don in New Jersey, listening on WABC. Don, you're on the Mark Levin Show. Hey, 
good afternoon. There's a site on human trafficking, Danielle Sattel, S-I-T-T-E-L, on Google. It says 1387 WordPress. The translation is at the back end of the picture of the hand over a glass. says, please submit. It says women are exploited. It's not a choice. Children are forced into marriage. All right, Don, Don I need you to, uh, you're going off field here. What's the, how's it relevant to this? Well, I'm Doug Sattel, S-I-T-T-E-L, on Google, in my YouTube upload. All right. Oh, no, 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 no. You're not going to – thank you. Thank you. You're not going not gonna to promote your thing. Let's go to uh, Ron in Brooksville, Florida. Boy, things are, things, are, things are happening down there in the Sunshine State, aren't they, Ron? It's going to be the ugliest election Florida's ever seen. Yeah, I bet it is. It already is. I mean, they've already started the race card that uh, – Obama used the term "don't monkey around with this and that." I didn't know it referred to blacks. I really didn't. Yeah, it, you know what? It was one of the most despicable things. I actually I wrote about this uh, over the Washington Times. There was a headline about half an hour after this came out that said that DeSantis said "monkey with" and directly related it to voting for the black candidate. They didn't even use the candidate's name. Your your Democrat nominee there. They just said black candidate. It was oh, yeah. such a lie. It, it's despicable. Uh, it's all of this is built on lies, and and you know I'm going to go back with this dossier, and it exchanged, in my opinion, between the attorney general and Bill Clinton at the airport in Arizona. I think there was a trade-off done right there. Ah, now that's that when they was, when they were talking about their golf game and their grandchildren on the tarmac. Oh, Bill yeah. was actually handing the <laughs> dossier over to Loretta. I'm going to work for Hillary. And Barack Obama wants to be on the Supreme Court, Bill, and that's what we're doing. We're fixing this dossier. Uh, Trump won't stand a chance to investigate any of this when we get this really going well. That's what the 15-minute meeting, but my main concern is, like, Bruce Orr just testified before Congress that he was keeping in contact with Steele all through all of this, and that he was uh, uh, Weissman in direct contact, and that's Mueller's lead investigator. Yeah. Now, the big thing of this, that connects the entire circle. The top four, the top uh, FBI, uh, the Justice Department, and we're going to go back to something that I really think that this goes back to Hillary Clinton selling her position as Attorney General over the uranium deal. The Secretary of State. Yeah, listen, there's a lot involved in it, Ron. I, I don't disagree with that, but it actually comes all the way back to Barack Obama. Uh, and thank you for the call. Andrew McCarthy actually has been making this point. I know you've heard Andrew here on Mark Levin's show, and he's been beating the drum on this for quite some time, that this ultimately, at least the part of the story where Comey and his uh, pal Strzok and, and Orr and those guys decided not to prosecute Hillary Clinton on the email thing, uh, it all really comes down to Barack Obama. It's really a protection racket for Barack Obama, because if they went after Hillary Clinton, then they'd have to go after Barack Obama. Uh, walk down the lane with me here. And and by the way, this was validated. This was Andrew McCarthy's hypothesis well over a year ago, uh, because Barack Obama specifically said that he was completely unaware that Hillary Clinton was using a, a non-government email server. He said that on the record. His spokesperson said it on the record. He said it in interviews. And uh, at the time, the Clinton campaign the next day wrote emails to each other, thanks to WikiLeaks, we know this, saying, this is a problem. we got to clean this up because 
he's received emails from Hillary Clinton's server. Now, Andrew McCarthy has been hypothesizing that this is a, a major part of this, that the reason that this entire investigation uh, reached the conclusion that it reached without any charges coming against Hillary Clinton was because it was really the only thing that could happen to protect Barack Obama. And in the inspector general's report that came out about the FBI's handling of the Clinton email investigation, uh, in a footnote, this exact thing was revealed. Uh, understand that this is what happened. He was asked, when did you first learn Hillary Clinton used an email system outside the U.S. government for official business when she was secretary of state? Bill Plant, retired reporter over there at CBS News, asked the president that question. And Obama's answer, the same time everybody else learned it through news reports. Remember that? Remember how everything that happened in America, Obama learned from watching TV when he wasn't watching ESPN? Well, here's the problem. When you look at the footnotes of the Inspector General Horowitz's report of the FBI's handling of this, I'll quote it right now. FBI analysts and prosecutor, too, told us that former, Barack former President Barack Obama was one of the 13 individuals with whom Clinton had direct contact using her ClintonEmail.com account. There were only 13 individuals that she had direct contact with, and Barack Obama was one of them. And see, that's that's really the problem. It proves that Barack Obama lied about this. It proves that Barack Obama had a vested interest in the outcome of the email investigation. And it proves that the entire thing was rigged from the start. And that's not being focused on much, is it? I wonder why. 877-381-3811. Will the Mueller investigation, if it stops right now, if it's frozen in time, will it affect the midterms? I want to hear from you. I'm Larry O'Connor in for the great one, Mark Levin. Mark Levin. I'm Larry O'Connor in for the great one, Mark Levin tonight, and we're asking... If the Mueller investigation is frozen now until Election Day, which conventional wisdom says it is because nothing will happen between Labor Day and Election Day, if you believe that, then will it affect the outcome? How will the midterms go? Has the Mueller investigation done enough to help the Democrats, which is, let's face it, the only reason the Mueller investigation was even begun? Michael Napa, California. Oh, what a beautiful part of the world that is. You're on the Mark Levin Show. I'm Larry O'Connor. Hey, Larry. Thanks for taking my call. Um, no, it will not be affected if if there was anything, any evidence at all, with the amount of leaks of this president, it would be out there by now already. There's nothing there, no way. And also, Democrats have absolutely no message other than hate Trump. And um, that the only, the only thing they are talking about is how to redistribute everybody's wealth. And that doesn't work in an economy like this. So no Michael, way. I think you're on to something there. Thank you for the call. It's brilliant because ultimately... Outside of impeachment, what is the overriding unifying message of the Democrats? They don't have one. I'm Larry O'Connor. You're listening to The Mark Levin Show. He's here. He's here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post... Deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. 
I'm Larry O'Connor sitting in for the great one, Mark Levin, today on the Mark Levin Show. I'm in Washington, D.C. In fact, I do the afternoon show in Washington, 3 to 6 p.m., right before Mark Levin comes on my station, WMAL, in the nation's capital. Uh, and I'm thrilled to be sitting in for Mark. And I want to talk a little bit about you know, what I love about the Mark Levin Show, and it's my show. I listen to it driving home, of course, just like you do or, or wherever you are right now listening to Mark Levin. And uh, one of the things I love about it is that he uh, explains conservative principles in such a clear and concise way, of course. And and one of the things I like about being a conservative is that oftentimes our arguments, our beliefs, our principles, uh, oftentimes, every time, uh, when our arguments, our beliefs and our principles are held up to the standard of logic, of, of just purely making sound, logical sense based on universal truths that everyone can agree on and and based on what we know of human nature, uh, oftentimes, every time, the conservative idea, the conservative position, the conservative principle wins out because they are based, in fact, they are based on universal truths and those principles do uh, make logical sense when you understand human nature. By the way, that's one of, on a quick tangent, that's one of the reasons why uh, proponents of left-wing ideas, liberal ideas, uh, people on the left, try to redefine universal truths all the time. I mean, what is what is more universal than the understanding of what uh, makes a man a man and a woman a woman, right? They're, they're, I mean, it's, it's probably the first fundamental truth we all understood at the beginning of time, that, oh, hey, there's a difference between us. You look like that, and I look like this. And we do different things. The fact that they're trying to redefine gender and what makes a man a man and a woman a woman and what it means to be a man and a man and a woman and a woman, that tells you that that's part of what they do. They try to redefine universal fundamental truths. And and last night on Fox News, uh, Tucker Carlson, I'm a big fan of Tucker Carlson. You may actually see me on his program. I'm on there on a regular basis. He made an argument about uh, American fiscal policies, about our welfare state, and about corporations, that I, the reaction today was remarkable to me because a bunch of so-called conservatives were hammering Tucker Carlson because they said he sounds like Bernie Sanders, he sounds like a socialist, he sounds like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. What is this all about? Now, I want you to hear this because I agree with him. I'm going to play a little bit of it. And if, if you agree, if you think that, that, oh, my God, Tucker Carlson, what's happened to you? You're... You're 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 calling for big government. You're you're calling for, you know, the United States federal government to abandon corporations and and force businesses to. to I want to hear from you. Go ahead and give me your your gut response to this eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. Because to me, in some respects, conservative conservatism has gone astray in this country. I think that that's obvious. I think it's one of the reasons why uh, Donald Trump rode into office writing against the establishment Republican Party. It's why you see a bunch of people who for decades called themselves conservative on cable news are now openly contradicting themselves and their own positions and their own principles that they uh, pretended to stand for for years because they happen to not like Donald Trump. Uh, I think that in many respects we went astray, and it's most specific to this principle of do you do you support a free market in our economy or do you support big business in our economy? Because the two don't go hand in hand. In fact, big business hates a free market. 
big businesses for the for the 150 or to 200 years we have had big businesses in this country when we started to move in the 19th century from an agriculture agrarian type of economy dominated by industry and big businesses and banks and 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 manufacturers it was at that moment where where we saw what happens when big businesses can completely and totally run amok hand in hand with their friends in Washington DC to stifle a free market they don't want a free market because a free market means competition if they can rig the game they will and they rig it by getting the government to help them rig it it's actually the epitome of big government. The government should stay out of the economy. But because they are able to mess with what is, in fact, a free market, that's when, when big businesses figure out how to game the system. And I don't necessarily blame them. I blame our elected officials for allowing it to happen. So let's go to Tucker here because he makes a point about Jeff Bezos and Amazon. And by the way, also Walmart. Uh, listen, here's cut one. Tucker Carlson last night. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, is worth about $150 billion. That's enough to make him the richest man in the world by far and possibly the richest human being in all of human history. It's certainly enough to pay his employees well, but he doesn't. A huge number of Amazon workers are so poorly paid, they qualify for federal welfare benefits. According to data from the nonprofit group New Food Economy, Nearly one in three Amazon employees in Arizona, for example, was on food stamps last year. Jeff Bezos isn't paying his workers enough to eat, so you made up the difference with your tax dollars. Next time you see Jeff Bezos, make certain that he says thank you. <laughs> now, uh, people responded to this. Conservatives, Republicans responded to this. You know, Fox News viewers saying, well, you sound like Bernie Sanders. What are you doing? What are you, what are you arguing for a living wage? You're arguing to raise the minimum wage? You're arguing to have the government mandate that Amazon pay their employees? Well, that's not at all what he's saying. That's not at all what he's saying. Listen to what he's saying here. Uh, here's cut two, because he, because he ties Walmart into this as well, and it's critically important if we're going to stand for something here. here. Here's Tucker Carlson, cut two. What about the Walton family? They founded Walmart. Collectively, they're worth about $175 billion dollars. That's more than the entire gross domestic product of Qatar, the oil-rich Gulf state. The Waltons could certainly afford to be generous with their workers. Instead, they count on you to take up the slack. In 2013, taxpayers sent more than $6 billion to Walmart's employees for food stamps, Medicaid, and housing assistance. Now, I understand how we instinctively hear a person attacking a successful business and the people behind that successful business and and criticizing them for not paying their employees enough. And we instinctively say, well, wait a minute, that's none of our business. They should be able to run their business however they want. If, if, if they can get employees to work for, you know, seven dollars an hour, eight dollars, that's their business. Let the employees make that decision. If they don't want to work for Walmart. Let them get some training and some education. They can get a better job somewhere else. I get that. I understand that. I don't disagree with you. And by the way, that's not the argument that Tucker's making. Tucker's not saying that the government should force them to pay their employees more. He's not doing what Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Elizabeth Warren, and basically every Democrat, and sadly a good chunk of Republicans, are, are fine with, which is the government intervening and forcing businesses to pay their employees more. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is they're only able to do that they're only able to keep their employees on a 40-hour work week and pay them poverty wages 
that won't even put food on their tables because they know you and I are putting food on their tables. We are subsidizing those low wages. This is this is in a way corporate welfare. If if you can take a job and work 40 hours a week for a huge mega billionaire company like Amazon and you can still put food on your table because you get food stamps paid for by the generosity of the American taxpayer, well then you'll go ahead and take that job. Now if you don't have that safety net, if you don't have the ability to put food on your table if you're making this this poverty level wage from Amazon. What are you going to do? You're going to say, I'm sorry, I can't live on that. You need to pay me more. That's how a free market works right now. It's not free. It's not a free market at all because Bezos and Walmart and these other major corporations know that you're footing the bill. Now, he's not arguing that the government should force them to pay their employees more. What he's arguing is we should stop subsidizing those corporations by paying for food stamps. Let the market truly be a free market. How is this not a conservative principle? As my friend Stephen Crowder would say, change my mind. Huh. Change my mind. Because I'm all in with this. 877-381-3811. And by the way, I think in part, listen, it's been said a lot, you know, this is why Trump won. This is Well, in a way, this is kind of why Trump won. Because the Republican Party was so beholden to the United States Chamber of Commerce and big businesses and big corporations that they instinctively and frankly, in a very lazy way, just jumped on board. Anything that's good for big business is, is good for me, good for the country, good for the economy. Well, not really. Not really. Understand something about big businesses. Big businesses don't have a political ideology. I don't want a big business to have a political ideology. I'm a, I'm a stockholder in a p- bunch of these companies. I own their stock. I don't want them to be political. I want them to make a profit. And they're going to figure out how to make a profit however they can. Good for them. Mazel tov. Make more money. I want my dividends. I want my share price to go up. Fabulous. But whether it's a Democrat in the White House or a Republican in the White House, whether it's a Democrat majority on Capitol Hill or a Republican majority on Capitol Hill, the company is still going to do what the company needs to do to make a profit. I'll give you a perfect example. GE. Now, now, when Jack Welch was the CEO of GE and there was a Republican in the White House and GE was making, you know, uh, tons of money with major manufacturing, with the aerospace and the defense industries and all that, you know, everyone assumed that GE was a conservative company, that GE was, was, was in the back pocket of the Republicans, Right. And then what happened when Barack Obama won the White House? And what happened at the same at 2008, Obama wins the White House, and you got a majority in the House and the Senate for the Democrats. Now it's the Democrats are calling all the shots, literally all the shots, because they even had a supermajority in the Senate. They could do whatever they wanted. What did GE do? Do you remember what GE did? GE jumped face first into the climate change crisis, the global warming crisis, the carbon emissions crisis. They, they, were, they were the greenest company you'll ever see. Remember, they owned uh, NBC at the time. Remember how NBC dedicated an entire week of their programming to global warming and environmental causes? Why did they do that? Why did GE, this major corporation, jump into the, the business of being all about climate change and joining and partnering with the Obama administration and the federal government in promoting climate change hysteria. Well, GE 
had a big division that made those compact fluorescent light bulbs. Remember that? Remember how the federal government and state governments wrote laws to force us to change our light bulbs to those terrible fluorescent light bulbs? Who benefited from that? Who benefited from those laws being passed? Well, if you had to throw out your 89-cent incandescent light bulb and replace it with a $5 fluorescent light bulb, that's going to show up pretty good on the revenue sheet for GE. Oh, but it got even better because two years after that, all the studies came out explaining how dangerous those compact fluorescent bulbs were. Not only did we all hate them, not only did we hate the light that it put out, not only did it give us headaches, but if you break one of those things, you got to get in a hazmat suit to clean it up because it's full of, here's the punchline, terrible things for the environment. Things that'll make you sick now. I'm not talking 600 years from now when the oceans rise or whatever. I'm talking about today. That thing breaks in your house. You don't want to inhale that stuff. So then what did GE do? Oh, it's beautiful. It's art. It's magical. I'm in awe of what they were able to do with this in such a short time. They came out with LED bulbs. So so first, they jump on board with the environmental thing. They get the Obama administration and the Democrats to write all these laws that outlaw the incandescent lamp, which was, by the way, the incandescent light was a fantastic, incredible invention. How much was an incandescent light? Seriously, 50 cents for a light bulb. And it gave out a beautiful light. And it was fantastic, but it, it took too much, too much energy. So then they get the compact fluorescent bulbs, which everybody hated, and that cost 10 times more money, right? But everyone hated them, and then we found out they were dangerous if you broke them. So then what do they do? The LED bulb. The LED bulb now costs, what, 15 bucks? But it is a beautiful light. I mean, the light it emits is fantastic, and it'll last forever. And if you break it, it's not dangerous. So how many expensive light bulb transactions happened for GE as a result of them jumping on board with climate change? Do they care about climate change? They don't care about climate change, and they don't care about politics, and they don't care about Democrats or Republicans. They care about their profit. God bless them. That's great. Get the government out of that business, and then you've really got a free market. And that's the point that Carlson's making here. Why should your tax dollars pay for food stamps for someone who has a 40-hour work week at Amazon, but they can't put food on their own table? You're subsidizing Jeff Bezos. I hope you're happy. How is that not conservative? I'd love to hear from you. 877-381-3811. I'm Larry O'Connor. It's the Mark Levin Show. Mark Levin. This system is indefensible, and yet almost nobody ever complains about it. How come? Well, conservatives like us support the free market, and for good reason. The free market works. But there's nothing free about this market. A lot of these companies operate as monopolies. They hate markets. They use government regulation to crush competition. There's nothing conservative about that, just as there's nothing conservative about most big corporations. Just the opposite. They are the backbone of the left. Well said, Tucker Carlson. Last night on Fox News, a Lou in my old home state of Michigan. I'm Larry O'Connor. You're on the Mark Levin Show. Hi, I just want to suggest, Larry, that some of these guys like uh, Bezos and the Waltons, these are very, very rich liberals. They profess to be Democrats. 
But when it comes to their own, they're total hypocrites. They say they say they believe in the welfare state. They criticize they believe in Democrats. Democrats criticize corporations for treating workers like garbage. And what do they do? The exact same thing. In fact, remember when Seattle was going to increase those taxes, and Amazon told them they're moving. Yet that's the Democratic policy. So they're really they're really just hypocrites. Yeah, and again, I don't blame them. That's what a businessman is going to do. They're going to play every side against the middle, and they're going to get a profit. But let's not kid ourselves that we're part of their profit that they're making. Uh, Lou, by the way, real fast, tomorrow, Wolverines over Fighting Irish, right? Michigan in a route, right? Got to be Wolverines. Go blue, baby. All right. How about uh, Kelly, also in Michigan? The Wolverine State is coming through. You are on the Mark Levin Show. Um, hi, Larry. Thank you. Um, I listened to that episode last night with Tucker Carlson, and I was about to post it <laughs> until he started talking about Bernie. I have a lot of followers that hate me but love Bernie, so I wasn't giving that up to him. It would have been better <laughs> had uh, it would have been better had he uh, Tucker told the nation about what was going on and maybe a way to work with it. But I'm yeah. wondering. I hear you, Kelly. we got to leave it there. I didn't mind the Bernie thing, and I'll explain why in a minute, because a lot of people like Bernie. They just like him for the wrong reason. It's your daily adult dosage of the Constitution. The Mark Levin Show. Call him now. At eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. Larry O'Connor sitting in for the great one, Mark Levin. I am in Washington D.C., your nation's capital. Eight seven seven three eight one three eight one one. We're talking about you know I love Mark Levin because he talks about our uh, not just our fundamental American principles and the American ideals that this nation was founded on, but conservative principles. And of course, uh, in my opinion, they're the same thing, right? Mark lays that out quite a bit. This is what our founders meant when they founded this nation. This is what we are supposed to be. This is what we were meant to be. And conservatives are trying to conserve those ideas, right? But somewhere along the line, we have lost our way in a couple of ideas, and one of them is this this idea that supporting big business is the same as supporting a free market, free market capitalism. It's not the same. It's not the same at all. And Tucker Carlson, I think, made that point wonderfully yesterday. Uh, it, it, this is very similar to the immigration issue, too. Listen, if, if, if we really did have a complete and total free market where there wasn't a welfare state, there wasn't government subsidies for anyone in this country below the poverty line where they could uh, get their school and they can get their food and they can get their health care and they can get every one of their basic needs, including housing, handled for them. Then in that perfect utopian world of an actual free market, then theoretically we wouldn't need immigration control, right? Because the free market would dictate this. You know, the 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 market demands for labor in America because of the prices of certain goods and services, require low-cost labor. And that low-cost labor isn't available currently in the job market. Therefore, we need to import that labor. That's the idea behind having lax immigration controls. That's why you challenge a Milton Friedman on this, and you say, well, so you're for open borders, right? I actually remember interviewing Rand Paul about this uh, during the campaign, and I challenged him on it. I said, well, if you're... 
if if you're really a libertarian, if you're really for the market determining all of these things, then why aren't you also for open borders? Because technically, that's just a supply and demand issue. There is a demand for that cheap labor. And so, therefore, the supply is coming from another country. And that's just the basic. And he, and he said, I, theoretically, I believe that. The problem is we have a welfare state. That's what Milton Friedman said. You can't have both. You can't have open borders and a welfare state. Get rid of one of them. Right. And But we lost our way on that because of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and big businesses uh, sort of taking control of much of the thought process of the Republican Party, dictating that what was good for big business was therefore good for capitalism in America and therefore good for Republican principles. But it hasn't really played out that way. And here's Tucker last night pointing this out where he was he was accused of being a, a Bernie Sanders socialist, where he made this point specifically about Amazon here and Walmart here. What about the Walton family? They founded Walmart. Collectively, they're worth about $175 billion. That's more than the entire gross domestic product of Qatar, the oil-rich Gulf state. The Waltons could certainly afford to be generous with their workers. Instead, they count on you to take up the slack. In 2013, taxpayers sent more than $6 billion to Walmart's employees for food stamps, Medicaid, and housing assistance. See, they're only able to pay the wages that they're paying their employees because they know and the employees know that that they're going to be able to put food on the table and have a roof over their head. Thanks to you. Thanks to your taxes, thanks to money confiscated by the federal government and then paid out to people who are working at these companies and not making a real wage. Now, I'm not saying the government should force them to pay a living wage or whatever they want to call it these days. I'm calling for the government to get out of this business altogether. That's what Tucker is calling for, too. Why is this not a conservative principle? Why is this not something that we can embrace? Is it because we have this knee-jerk gut reaction whenever there's criticism of a big company and what they pay their employees? Because, because the left has owned that all of a sudden? Because the people who scream in the streets and block traffic for a $15 McDonald's worker wage, uh, because they own that now. So we can't say, well, I don't agree with, with your goal, but I do agree with one part of this, and that is the federal government should stop paying these benefits on behalf of a corporation. It really is a subsidy. Sal, in Colorado, Rocky Mountain High. I'm Larry O'Connor in for Mark Levin. What do you think, Sal? Well, uh, it's sad. It's really sad because these companies, they have commercials where they talk about America and things like that. But when they don't take care of their employees and do more things to to help them out and dump it on the taxpayers and the nation, this hurts people. And yeah. it's not fair. Now, in the real world, Sal, Sal, what do you do for a living? So right now uh, I do a, a bill of... Uh, uh, how do I do it? You're like, making me uh, nervous, Sal. You should be brother. able to answer this easier. You, 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 you well, should be able I to answer it. <laughs> but I, I, I do the paperwork for my brother because... Uh, all right. But what, but what kind what of business? Right all right. All right. Well, in in, in the a, real in a, world... He's a core driller. A core driller. Yeah. Okay. So in the core driller world, right, uh, and, you, mm-hmm. and he's got employees for his company, right? If if yep. he doesn't pay a good wage or give good benefits to his employees, what are those, what are those employees going to do? They're going to have to get benefits from uh, the government because they don't have enough to take care of them. Well, or or they'll go to your brother's competitor 
and say, listen, dude, I, I'm skilled. I know how to do this job, and uh, but he's not paying me enough. How about if I work for you? And and that's what a competitive free market employment uh, uh, world looks like, right? Uh, that That's oh, yeah. what anybody would do, right? If they're unhappy with the money they're making, especially, by the way, in a job environment like this, where there's actually more jobs available than there are people to fill them. And and so and if that's what happens in the real world, why can't that happen with America's most successful companies like Amazon and Walmart? And why can't Republicans and conservatives champion that idea? That's that's I guess it would be a good thing. I think it would be. And I think it's actually a popular message. Sal, thank you for the call. And again, I'm not saying that the government should force companies to do this. I'm saying actually, again, that we open this up so that the market is freer, that that if you've got a job, you're not going to get all of these benefits. And that's when the employee says to their boss, dude, we're not going to get food stamps anymore. You need to pay us. Now, listen, I understand how the economy works. I do understand what ends up happening here. What ends up happening here is that Walmart and Amazon are going to have to pay for this. And they're going to pay for this by increasing the cost of their goods and services. I get that. Okay. I do. They're going to have to make a choice. Do I make as much profit as I have? Again, Amazon, richest company ever. Well, at least Bezos is the richest man ever. Technically, I think that Apple is now the richest company ever, and they're paying slave wages in China. That's a whole other story. They will have to raise the cost of their service, Amazon, and their goods in the case of Walmart. I get that. And ultimately, you will have to pay for that, right? through the cost of using Amazon service or through the cost of buying underwear at Walmart. I do understand that. That's how this will work. Here's the difference. You get to choose whether you buy something at Amazon for a actual fair market cost instead of the deflated cost of using Amazon. Amazon does not actually cost you what it should cost you if they were paying their employees enough where they didn't have to be on food stamps, right? You're getting a break in the cost of your Amazon if you choose to use Amazon. Now, if they actually start paying their employees in such a way that their employees don't have to take federal benefits to put food on their table, then the cost of Amazon will go up, sure. But then you can choose to say, oh, you know what, maybe I'm not going to do Amazon anymore, right? But but you get to choose that. And ultimately, what will end up happening is these federal subsidy programs will start to shrink. They should start to shrink. They should get cut. They should get diminished. And then your taxes go down. See, the difference between you choosing to buy something at Walmart for more money than you're paying right now and the federal government taking your money against your will to subsidize the Walmart employee is that in the in the former scenario, you have choice. You, in a free market as the consumer, can say, you know what, that underwear costs too much. I'm not going to buy it from Walmart. I'll go somewhere else. But you don't have that choice when your taxes are taken from you. And that's the difference here. And it's a pretty important one. It's time for us to stop subsidizing that. And and again, this isn't anti-capitalism. In fact, this is embracing the actual fundamental principles of capitalism and a free market. And somehow we lost our way on that. Uh, let's take uh, Mr. Producer, if you could. My, my call screen dropped out, so go ahead and give me the uh, the next call there. I appreciate it. Andrew in North Carolina, you're yeah. next up on the Mark Levin Show. Larry, this is Andrew. How are you? I'm good, Andrew. What do you think of this? 
well, Walmart started back during the, uh, actually during the Bush age, and they continued this stuff on really heavy in the Obama age. Essentially what they did, um, used to everybody work full-time for Walmart. They had benefits, the whole shooting match. Um, this is back in the 80s, actually late 80s, early 90s. Um, then they started dropping people out of full-time work, hiring just part-time people, no benefits. I know that many stores, uh, like in Huntsville, Alabama, here in Clinton, North Carolina, um, there's typically only t- like two managers in most stores. If it's a bigger store, they could have more. But um, all the people that used to work for them and were working at full-time uh, on the floor and doing different things, a lot of those they dropped back to part-time. Some they grandfathered in. I don't know what rules they used for that, so I can't speak intelligently about that part. But but they were able uh, to do that because uh, <laughs> the, the market allowed them to do that, right? Bingo. Bingo. They're taking advantage of the people, getting anybody they can get to come in there, whether they're class workers, non-class workers. The, one, the good workers left went somewhere else. Um but they cut out all the benefit parts and you know as well as I do, I've been in business many, many years. And, um, when you, when you look at the cost of an employee, you look at their salary, you can pretty much say, okay, salary times two, that's my estimated cost for benefits. Right. Benefits and payroll taxes and all the other things. Absolutely. Andrew, thank you for the call. It's a great point and it's an important one because again, I don't blame the business. I don't blame the business at all. Business is going to do what a business needs to do to make sure that they get the best profit. This is what they've been able to do because we, the taxpayers, have been patsies. We've allowed them to do it. And frankly, uh, they've been able to manipulate elected officials to uh, open up all these. Benefits. You know, a Democrat gets to go up there. Obama gets to go up there and say, look at all the food stamps. that we're back. This is a success story. So many people are on food stamps. That's not a success story. That's a disaster. That's a disaster, because if everybody's on food stamps, it means they're not actually putting food on their table through a wage, through getting a job, through working and benefiting and contributing to the economy. Because the more people that work and make those higher wages, the better it is because they'll be able to buy more things, by the way, at Walmart and Amazon. And that's how these things continue to grow the economy. Sam, listening in in Virginia, my home station at WMAL. Sam, you're next up. I'm Larry O'Connor. It's the Mark Levin Show. Hey there, Larry. Good to hear you on Mark's show. Thanks. Hopefully see you on the trail tomorrow. The uh, I think this, you know, Tucker laid it out really nicely, as as are you tonight, but I think it's such a, a much more complex issue. And as far as conservatives go, I think we're walking, you know, kind of a thin line on this, and, and my explanation for it is that, you know, recently the big argument was about minimum wage. And we all, you know, everybody came together and said, ah, we shouldn't have a minimum wage because, why? Because it should be driven by the market, and it should be the employees saying, you know what, that's not enough, I'm walking away. But it seems to me that we are talking out of both sides of our mouth now that because Amazon and Walmart uh, and somehow somebody sat in a, you know, a room and says, Hey, this is an interesting concept because these, uh, this, you know, these certain amount of people are getting a uh, benefits of some type. Obviously, we're paying for them, but I think there's some some level of an intrinsic value 
as we've always said at conservatives, about people having a job, working their way up into the labor market with better jobs as they go along. And I think the real, the real angst that I have and where we should focus our anger is toward, you know, reforming these subsidies. Yeah. Because I think if we pull, if we pull the rug out and say, you know what, if you're getting this much, uh, if you're working for Amazon, you work for Walmart, and then you're also, for lack of a better term, double dipping, and you're still able to, uh, qualify for subsidies, we're going to yank the subsidies. Yeah. Well, what are people going to do? They're going to, just like with the healthcare argument, they're going to cut back on their hours to where they just go right underneath the bridge. So it should be more, in my view, of a, uh, uh, a test of time. So Theoretically, Sam, now I, I understand the point you're making, and I think it's a fair one. I, I disagree with you on one point, because if, if that scenario happens, that means uh, Amazon and Walmart start losing their employees, and ultimately they do need employees, so they will start enticing people back to work. But you're right. Listen, it's, it's, it's not like you can push a button and everything changes, right? I, I, I totally get that. I do. Uh, but... but by just sitting complacently and allowing big businesses to be able to take advantage of we are what we are providing with our tax dollars as these entitlements grow bigger and bigger and bigger, and they're allowed to grow without any kind of repercussions, that's got to stop at some point. And it stops by having this conversation. Sam, thank you for the call. Uh, a couple more on this in a moment. A lot of you want to chime in, and I appreciate that. Uh, and also, I'll uh, remind you, of the great words of President John F. Kennedy when he challenged us to put a man on the moon. Apparently, he wasn't just talking to us in America. I'll explain in a moment. I'm Larry O'Connor. It's the Mark Levin Show. Mark Levin. John F. Kennedy challenged the American people and most specifically the American Congress to successfully put a man on the moon. Yeah, you remember it's it's uh, iconic. Listen, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. And by 1969, they achieved that. Sadly, President Kennedy, of course, didn't live to see that moment, but it was an iconic moment, an incredible moment, when Neil Armstrong planted the American flag on the moon. And now we've got a movie coming out about it. It's called First Man, and I'm sure you've seen that uh, that moment, that moment of incredible American achievement, well, it doesn't happen in the movie. They, they cut the flag. They cut the flag, and Ryan Gosling, the Canadian actor who is playing Neil Armstrong, uh, said that it was very deliberate. He says, I think this was widely regarded in the end as a human achievement, and that's how we chose to view it. This is so beautiful. Uh, Who knew that when uh, Kennedy said, we will put a man on the moon, he wasn't talking about we Americans, uh, even though we paid for it. He wasn't talking about we, the United States government, even though he was actually addressing Congress in a joint session. No, he was talking about we humans, we we Earth inhabitants. We're all going to do it. You know, the Solomon Islands inhabitants, they were just as responsible for it. Great. Uh, Why is this important? Because right now, more people believe that Kennedy was assassinated 
by the people who were depicted in Oliver Stone's film than by what really happened. Movies matter. Culture matters. This matters. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. 877-381-3811 to get into the Mark Levin Show. I'm Larry O'Connor sitting in for Mark Levin. I am in Washington, D.C. On the home station for Mark Levin. The bunker is uh, in this general vicinity. I'm sure he uh, mentions on a regular basis. And uh, I have the pleasure of doing three hours of radio every afternoon right before the Mark Levin show. And uh, I am a big listener and big fan and uh, a friend of Mark Levin's, if I may say. And it's an honor to be a part of your day today on this great program. Uh, You know, sadly... The school shooting issue has uh, reared up its head again after this event last weekend down in Jacksonville, Florida, at the 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 gaming thing. I, you know, I'm a gamer. I it's remarkable to me that that this story didn't stick around very long because it didn't fit the narrative that people who want to infringe on the Second Amendment uh, want it to fit into, right? It was a handgun. It was bought in Maryland, which uh, has some of the strictest gun laws in America. Didn't stop former Governor Martin O'Malley, by the way, from uh, tweeting out that the NRA and uh, Florida laws were responsible for this. What a What a complete nincompoop. Uh, the guy didn't even realize that he was a Maryland resident and the gun was bought under his quote-unquote, common-sense gun safety laws that he wrote several years ago, Martin O'Malley. Uh, but, but, and and it wasn't, uh, it was a handgun, right? It wasn't an AR-15. And it wasn't uh, in a school. You know, if this had been a, it was a, f- what, the Madden football uh, gaming competition. If this had been a first-person shooter game, I bet they would have picked up that narrative, Right. Um, I'm 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 a gamer. I play video games, and and I do first-person shooter games. And I'm sorry, there's, there are millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people who play these games, and they don't go out and and slaughter innocent people. Uh, one of the things that frustrates me sometimes with conservatives is that they try to protect the Second Amendment, but then they pivot and attack the First Amendment, right? They say, no, the real problem is Hollywood and these TV shows and these movies and these video games. Don't infringe on my gun rights, but uh, but let's start looking at the content of these films and these video games. No, I'm sorry. Let's protect the Second Amendment and the First Amendment, okay? The same argument you would make about all the millions of gun owners in America who own guns and don't slaughter innocent people because they're responsible gun owners. Well, you can say the same thing about people who play video games and watch TV and watch movies. There are millions of people who play those games and they don't end up doing violent acts either, okay? How about how about we set aside the, trying to attack any rights here and try to get to the core of the issue? And it is a complex issue. I'll grant you that. But as children are going back to schools right now, uh, the phenomenon of school shootings in particular are back in the news. And people are trying to, you know, wring their hands. Oh, what can we do to protect our children in our schools? And I'm not trying to minimize the the dramatic aspect of what happens when there is one of these horrible school shootings. But I think we kind of lose the plot a little bit on this. And there, there's two aspects of the story that I want to share with you. The first is uh, 
I got. I, I can't believe I'm saying it, but I got to give credit to National Public Radio of all things. And, and why not give credit to National Public Radio? After all, we pay for it, right? So I'm really giving credit to you. I, I got to give credit to you for paying for National Public Radio because they actually did some research on a statistics that the federal government had put out. Federal government, Department of Education, did a study. They they sent a questionnaire out to every single public school in America, 96,000 of them. Uh, usually these things were answered by the the superintendent of a school district. So they answered on behalf of all of the schools within the district, right? But it covered 96,000 schools. And the result was, the uh, question was, uh, did you have an incident at your school that involved a uh, the discharge of a firearm or an explosive device? Now, you would think... That there could be a search of, you know, police records to get the answer to this. And the Department of Education at the federal level wouldn't have to actually waste people's time at the school board level, school district level to actually have to fill out this questionnaire. But but no, they they relied on the responses of the superintendents. It turned out their report showed that there were 240 incidents. Right. You probably have heard this. 240 school shootings. Last year in 2016, 240 school shootings in 2016. And, of course, uh, this is the kind of data that sets the conversation in the mainstream media, in the pop culture. It actually sets the political rhetoric that is used to justify an infringement of your Second Amendment rights on Capitol Hill because they'll throw this around and they'll say, well, 240 school shootings. we got to do something about this. Well, first of all, considering there are 96,000 schools in America and there were 240, that right there, frankly, statistically, is not that big a deal. I mean, it is a big deal if it's your kid. Don't get me wrong. And, of course, school shootings are terrible. And if we can do something to stop them, we should. But let's put it in perspective, right? The reason they say 240 is because they're trying to make a big number. You know, wow, five per state, roughly. That's a big deal. That could be your kid's school. We need to do something. That's the reason they throw the number out. Well, in reality... 240 out of 96,000 ain't so gigantic, number one. But here's the real crux of it. The 240 number is a lie. It's inflated. It's wrong. The government didn't follow up and confirm these numbers. It took National Public Radio to do it. They actually called the districts. I think, they won't say this, but I think they were putting together a sob story. They were trying to put together this giant expose where they were going to tell the real human stories of the victims of these 240 school shootings. We shouldn't just think about it as a number. I'm doing my NPR thing now. We shouldn't just think about this as a number or a statistic. These are, these are the lives of our children that were affected by these school shooting incidents, 240 of them. And now today on National Public Radio, we're going to tell their stories. That was the that was the segment they wanted to do. But then when they started following up and wanting to get answers from the school. okay, so tell us about the school shooting that happened in your school district. And the guy on the other end of the phone says, "Um, what school shooting? Uh, Oh, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm calling from National Public Radio. Uh, I've got this uh, report from the Department of Education. You know, there were 240 school shootings nationwide. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that. I heard I heard that statistic. That's terrible. Yeah. Well, uh, sure. Uh, 240 school shootings in this country. And uh, and seven of them happened in your school district last year. What seven? We don't we didn't have one school shooting in our school district. Oh, yeah, you did. You had seven because the Department of Education gave us this number in the report. Well, there's a mistake there. And this went, happened on and on and on as the research continued. It wasn't 240 school shootings. It wasn't 200 school shootings. It wasn't 
100 school shootings. It wasn't 40 school shootings. It wasn't 14 school shootings. After NPR followed up with all of the school districts, they could only confirm 11 school shootings. 11 out of 96,000 schools. Now, listen, 11 school shootings is horrible. It, it, it is a bizarre and troubling phenomenon that school children take a gun into a school and and discharge it. Now, now, let me just be clear. Some of these school shootings of those 11 were not the classic uh, kid goes into the school and shoots as many people as they can, reloads, keeps shooting until they kill themselves. It wasn't they weren't all Columbines. Right. They weren't all Marjorie Stoneman's. Uh, some of these 11 school shootings was, you know, a dispute in a parking lot. Now, that's not I'm not trying to minimize it. I'm trying to put it in perspective and give it context. 11 school shootings in one school year out of 96,000 schools. It's troubling. It's a problem. Is it something that we now need to pass legislation at the federal level that would infringe on the Second Amendment? I think most reasonable people would say no. Not even close. Not even close. But that story's not really being reported much, is it? I don't remember CNN setting up a town hall with my friend Dana Lash to to apologize and explain to the world that they got it wrong and maybe this isn't quite uh, the epidemic that everybody thinks. And, oh, maybe maybe the National Rifle Association isn't a terrorist organization, as they've said. Eleven versus 240 which has become part of the narrative that we've had to push back against. But that doesn't change the fact that as a parent, you do what you can to protect your child. And if your child is potentially in danger, even if it's remote danger, you would like to put in certain measures if you can to protect them, especially in the school that you're paying for, whether through your tax dollars or through your private tuition to a parochial school, although it is interesting that these school shootings tend to just happen in public schools. Have you, have you noticed that, that it's not the kid in the Catholic school that ends up doing this and shooting up all their friends? I wonder why that is. So if we can protect our kids, we should. If we can do something to keep them safer in school, we should do it, right? So, so what's your idea? How would you like to protect our kids? What do you think would be a good idea? to secure our schools better and actually protect children if, in fact, that horrible, very rare occurrence were to take place and and somebody does come into the school trying to shoot kids. 877-381-3811. What do you think is the best solution here? 877-381-3811. Up in Massachusetts, beautiful, wonderful, crazy liberal Massachusetts, A local school district in Boston, uh, they've come up with a solution. I want you to hear this. This is not parody. This is not Saturday Night Live. This is not a funny radio bit. This is very real. It was on the Boston Fox station where they were highlighting how a school district is now handing out survival buckets for each classroom. 
Listen. Rope. Hammer. Duct tape. Wooden door stop. Brockton Public Schools is supplying every classroom with these lockdown buckets. We're a district that is progressive and we're paying attention to what is happening around the country. Superintendent Kathleen Smith says in order to focus on education, teachers and students need to feel safe in their classroom. And that requires this equipment. It is the reality and I don't think there's a parent out there, a, a superintendent, a community that wouldn't take a look at something like this and really give it some thought. We need to protect the kids in the classroom from a madman with a rifle coming down the hall. So we're going to give you a survival bucket with rope, a hammer, and duct tape. Now, the only thing in that bucket that I see of any use would be the hammer, I suppose, if you were going to use it to bash in his skull, although, you know, it's not really a ranged weapon. So you'd have to have pretty good aim to throw that hammer at his face. But I, I can see it. But that's not actually what the hammer is for. Listen. The school district partnered with Lowe's to provide staff with supplies should they be in a situation where they either need to barricade the doors, break open a window to get out and run, or in the worst case scenario, fight back. I hope we never have to use these. The hammer has two uses in this scenario. The first is to pound a door wedge under the door so the guy can't open the door. And then you can use it to break the window so you can run out the window and escape. You're not even supposed to use the hammer on the guy's head. Now, I don't know. I... I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I'm thinking you might have some better ideas on what we should put in the bucket. If you're handing out a survival bucket to the classroom so that they can protect themselves against a shooter, what are you putting in the bucket? 877-381-3811. We'll get to your responses in a moment. I'm Larry O'Connor, and this is the Mark Levin Show. Mark Levin. So what would you put in the bucket, the survival bucket? Up in Boston, they want to protect their schools from a potential school shooter. Now, we've already sort of blown apart the fact that the statistics they've been giving us are completely inflated and wrong. Uh, the federal government, through the Department of Education, said 240 school shootings happened in 2016. Uh, after NPR followed up on all of those school districts, turns out it was 11. It was 11. But still, if we can do something to protect our kids, let's do something to protect our kids. Don't get me wrong. I think we should. it's not federal legislation. It's not something that uh, is going to require any infringement on the Second Amendment. Uh, they're putting out these survival buckets. And the survival buckets have rope, hammer, duct tape, and a door wedge so that you can, you know, keep the door from opening. What would you put in the bucket? In fact, listen, here's uh, cut seven here. Uh, they're, they're still open to suggestions. Staff members will be given these buckets next Tuesday when they return to school. And administrators will continuously work with them to determine what other essential items will need to go inside to ensure classroom safety. If only there was an instrument, if there was only some kind of device that we had that you could put in that bucket, that survival bucket, maybe the teacher could have it, and and that instrument could actually stop the person with the gun. And, and and not something that would require you to get up close to him like a hammer. Something where you could you could use it from far away. 
and 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 use this device and that device could somehow stop the person dead in his tracks if i may use that phrase i don't I, i'm sure there's something out there a uh, bob in montana bob uh, you're on the mark levin show can you believe these people hey larry how you doing thanks for taking my call you bet well my mine is actually twofold number one the hammer idea yeah. Um, for all of those on the school board that agreed to that, if any one child is hurt or killed, they should be charged along with the shooter if the shooter survives. Oh, oh yeah. Can or you imagine the school, the school district? Hey, we did everything we could to protect the kids. I mean, we gave them a hammer. Right. Well, first, first of mine is this. There's nothing wrong with the idea of teachers that want to and are legally uh, uh, viable to do so to carry a handgun. As a matter of fact, we have a national education system, so it should actually be mandated for those that want to carry it. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I was telling your uh, 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 producer there, Mr. Producer, thank you, sir, <clears throat> <laughs> this. In this country, we have tens of thousands of unemployed military veterans. Yep. Put one at every entrance and exit at the schools from grade school up to college. Should they be armed? Yeah, with a taser or possibly a, um, not a pellet, but uh, what do they call them? Yeah, a rubber pellet gun. Yeah. That way there's no deaths involved and the shooter is stopped. On yeah, top of that, but, do one further thing and but, market this on radio and television and say, look. We, we don't have time for it, Bob, but it's a great idea. Well, listen, we've got Rick in Manassas. I'm going to get to him next. His son was killed in Columbine. So keep it right here on the Mark Levin Show. I want to hear his story and what his reaction is to this madness. How to protect our kids in school. More logic than allowed by law. The Mark Levin Show. Call now at 877-381-3811. I'm Larry O'Connor sitting in for Mark Levin today, 877-381-3811. I am in Washington, D.C. I'm actually, uh, I broadcast three hours right before Mark Levin on our D.C. station, WMAL. And it is a pleasure and honor to do that every day. And it's certainly beyond a pleasure and honor to uh, sit in for the great one today. Talking about how we defend our kids. I, I You know... I think the conservatives, when we try to uh, push back against gun control measures, and we're smart to do so, and we uh, try to protect the Second Amendment, and we're, we're righteous to do so when it is under attack after a school shooting or any other mass shooting in our, in our society, uh, we sometimes don't stop for a moment and actually say, well, that said, as a parent, it freaks me out to think that my kid could get shot in school. I got four kids, and, I, and, and and it 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 disturbs. And if all we do is protect the Second Amendment, it sounds like we don't care. It sounds like we're heartless. It sounds like we're, eh, you know, and listen, I understand, oh, well, that's just emotion. And we conservatives, we don't dwell in the world of emotion. We dwell in logic and thought and facts. And I get it. You're right. We do. But if we don't have some emotion going on there, too, and if we don't sympathize with the parents, usually moms, <laughs> who don't like the idea of their kid being vulnerable in their schoolroom, and all we talk about is the right to bear arms, well, it, it comes across as though we're not recognizing that the idea and thought of losing our child in this horrific way 
isn't something that resonates and something that, at the very least, we should speak to. Now, we speak to it not by infringing on our Second Amendment, not by taking guns away, because we know the facts are on our side here. We know that these things happen only in gun-free zones. We know that in jurisdictions that have actually uh, quite quite open gun laws, where people can carry, where the Second Amendment is not infringed, in fact, where the Second Amendment is celebrated, well, in those places, more often than not, violent crime is less, is less frequent, that we actually have lower rates of violent crime in those areas where guns are actually more accessible by responsible gun owners. We know that those facts are on our side, but we have to arm ourselves with those facts and then make a compassionate, reasonable, logical argument as to how we can keep our kids safe and still, in fact, keep our Second Amendment sound. And that's why we should entertain ideas about how to protect our schools in the rare instance that a shooting might occur there. But when you hear what they're doing in Boston with this, let's go to the first one, five, cut five for a second here, just if you're just joining us. This is a real news report in Boston, how they're going to protect their classes. Rope, hammer, duct tape, wooden doorstop. Brockton Public Schools is supplying every classroom with these lockdown buckets. We're a district that is progressive, and we're paying attention to what is happening around well, the country. they're progressive, Superintendent right. Kathleen Smith says in order to focus on education, teachers and students need to feel safe in their classroom, and that requires this equipment. It is the reality, and I don't think there's a parent out there, a, a superintendent, a community that wouldn't take a look at something like this and really give it some thought. Well, no, you're right. There are parents and communities who are taking a look at how to secure our schools. We're just not doing it with a bucket full of a rope, a hammer, and a doorstop. We're thinking, hey, maybe a trained armed professional. And, and, and by the way, the argument is not that the trained armed professional will then shoot the school shooter who's going on a shooting rampage. No, the the fact that there are trained armed professionals now ubiquitous in our public schools will deter the shooter from ever going there in the first place. Rick from Manassas, Virginia, listening in on WMAL, the aforementioned home station here in Washington, D.C. WMAL. Hey, man. So, Rick, you said that you are the father of, of a victim of Columbine? Yes, sir. Man, I uh, please tell me your story and, 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 and how you take this. See, to me, if I were in your shoes, I would be insulted by, by what yeah, I'm well, hearing here. Well, well, I am. This is what Boston is doing with these buckets. I'm sorry. It's left-wing lunacy at its finest. First of all, I, let me tell you about my son. He was sitting with Rachel Scott outside. He didn't carry his – he never would have carried a bucket. He was one of the first two people shot. Uh, the police report doesn't really detail if he was shot first or Rachel. Um, these folks in Boston have no clue. Uh, and by the way, I was I was pilloried in the press for being a Second Amendment protector. By the way, I don't belong to the NRA. I don't even own a gun. I just said this is part of our Constitution. And if you and and at the time, Bill Clinton came out um, to speak with his wife, who by the way didn't make president. There were 17,000 laws broken when my son got shot, municipal, state, federal. Uh, The Clinton administration, by the way, back then, prosecuted zero. There were 6,000 federal gun crimes in schools by students bringing things. He prosecuted nobody. 
They're not serious about this. And unfortunately, the Boston folks um, right next door to Connecticut, they're not going to solve this problem by giving out buckets, duct tape, doorstops. My son was outside having lunch and got shot eight times. Mm. He's a paraplegic um, today, 19 years now. Um, and the, the, the sad part of this is that they're not going to do anything to prevent it. The children, I say the children, they were 17, that shot my son, they had made school videos. The school said, oh, they had a right to privacy with these videos, claiming they were going to shoot all their students. Had they had a school resource officer who had watched and looked and listened to the scuttlebutt like any good beat cop, they would have known that these were dangerous folks, uh, both on psychotropic drugs, both, yeah. you know, you name it. I mean... Go ahead, Larry. I mean, I'm no, Rick. It's I, listen. I don't want to interrupt you because it's not often we get to hear you know this kind of uh, firsthand testimony from someone who is in your position. I, I gotta. I, did this? Did the events in Columbine turn you into an advocate? I mean, obviously, your first priority was and has been, I'm sure, your son. Well, um, but I, but what about the issue itself? Did you become an advocate for for these, no, these events? No, and I'll tell you why. Um, I was there were advocates on the other side. There was right. a, there was a, a gentleman there that lost his son, became a paid person for the Brady uh, faction. I, I, I testified before Congress, both the House and the Senate. I was actually on one of the DIAs with uh, Governor Gilmore on Project Exile. And and unfortunately, the Democrats and I hate to pillory them. They turned it into a racial issue. It was pretty clear. You use a gun. You should go to jail. You think you're going to bring a gun to school and somebody finds out about it. Whether or not you have free speech as a 16-year-old, that's up to your parents. Mm. It's not for the school system to say, we have to protect your rights. You're allowed to make videos of killing your fellow students. They could have predicted that. That's the sad part of that travesty. Yeah. Um, I, I don't remember you in Michael Moore's movie. Uh, I, he's, Michael Moore is a, I'm not going to curse on your TV show. I mean, your radio show. He's a POS. Yeah. Even he took advantage of my son, Michael Moore. Michael Moore has armed guards. Oh, yeah. Rosie O'Donnell has armed guards. Oprah has armed guards. Al Gore has armed All of those left-wing lunatics have armed guards. Why? Because they don't want somebody coming after them. Unfortunately, the, you know, the panacea that's, that thinks you're going to fix this by getting rid of guns Criminals, look, Chicago, look at Rahm Emanuel in Chicago. And I don't mean to get political. They get the strongest gun laws in the nation. Of course. And how many people die every weekend? They don't even care. But, yeah. You know, and can you imagine them going to those neighborhoods in, in South Chicago and saying, you know what, you guys should get buckets with hammers, you know, because the shootings are going to happen anyway. You should just bar yourselves in your homes to make sure so, that they can't get into your house. Let, let, just let me give you this. I think you, school resources officers make a lot of sense. They're a lot like beat cops. They can spot the people that ha- would have a propensity to want to kill their fellow students. In my son's case, um, my, my son was in the band. He, you know, he wasn't part of the football team. He never bullied anybody. He's eating lunch outside. Giving him a bucket outside? What is it? <laughs> carry buckets around like lunch boxes? It's insulting. It's just, it's, it's insulting. 
Oh, oh, it's it's worse than insulting. It's yeah. just stupidity at its finest. Rick, can I, I, I? You said your son is a is a paraplegic now. It's what he's got to be. What thirty six years old now? Thirty eight. Uh, well, actually, he's he's thirty eight, going on thirty nine. He was seventeen when he got shot, wow. and it was nineteen years ago. How's he How's he doing? I mean, obviously, he's in a, well, he's a paraplegic, he, you know, but actually, um, he's morphed his position about gun control, but I think it's more of his. Personally, his Hollywood influence. <laughs> he, you know, I mean, I had some influence when he was 17, um, and now he lives in Hollywood. And he, you know, Occupy L.A. and some other things. But wow. God love him. It's his right. Of course. He deserves that. We and have a difference of opinion now about guns. He's just, in my opinion, he's not realistic. But he's been but, to get rid but, of guns in this country. But setting aside the politics of it, listen, I, I can understand somebody going through what he went through and certainly being influenced by his environment to sort of, you know, end up in, in one side of the equation. I, I Honestly, doesn't even matter to me. I'm more interested in, you know, does he does he have a good life? Does he have a family? Has he been able to sort of put things together after that horrific? I mean, I can't imagine at 17 years old for that happening to me. Right. So the day he got shot, I got on a plane and went to Colorado, uh, bought a house. Uh, stayed there and went through rehab with him and lived in basically stayed in the hospital, lived through rehab. Uh, and the folks out there were great, by the way. Um, but there was this constant, um, you know, you got to get rid of guns. You got to get rid of guns. And it's like, look, I, look, I'm an engineer. I do engineering for a living. This doesn't solve the problem. Criminals don't give a damn about what a law says. They just don't. And it's naive to believe they will. It's, just look at Chicago. Look at any big city that's got a gun problem. Yeah. And it's it's not the gun problem from the law-abiding people. It's the gun problem from the hoodlums, the crips, the blood, you name it. It's not the people that pay attention to the Second Amendment. Hell, the people that cause most of the problem don't even know what the Constitution says, the Bill of Rights, and they're not well-educated. Rick in Manassas, thank you so much for calling in. God bless you. I can't imagine going through what you went through, and uh, and love and prayers to your son as well. Uh, thanks for calling in today on the Mark Levin Show. Uh, that's the the beauty uh, and amazing power and reach of this program, where we're talking about how to protect our kids in school, as as we all all us parents are thinking right now, as it's back to school time, and it is in the back of our minds these school shootings. And um, and then a father of one of the victims of Columbine happens to be listening and calls in and tells his story. Um, I, I, you know, one other story. I, we, we talked earlier about this Department of Education study that falsely, erroneously, feloniously claimed that 240 school shootings happened in 2016. NPR goes, investigates it all, and it turns out uh, not even close. Uh, in fact, it's... 11. Uh, but there was one other study that got blown apart this week. In fact, just today, uh, John Lott, the great John Lott, who wrote the uh, essential book, More Guns, Less Crime. Uh, John Lott is not a, a gun guy, per se. He's not a Constitution guy. He's not even a Second Amendment guy. He's a numbers guy. He's a statistics guy. He's a guy who actually looks at at studies and numbers and facts and crunches the numbers. And, uh, and and he, like you and I, continued to hear this one study done by a uh, criminologist named Adam Lankford. 
And this study shows that how many times do we hear Barack Obama or anybody else on television, a Democrat, a, a Hollywood actor, an advocate, whatever. They always said this is a uniquely American problem. This is unique to America that we have these mass shootings. These mass shooting events only happen in America. Why is it? Why doesn't it happen in France? Why doesn't it happen in Finland? Why doesn't it happen in Russia? Why doesn't it? And they keep saying this is just about America, right? And and this and when Obama said that, the journalists just they they swallow it hook, line, and sinker, right? John Lott actually followed up with the Obama White House and said, well, "What's your basis for that?" But yeah, Obama would say that. of mass shootings, mass shooters, happen to be in America. Even though America only accounts for less than 5% of the world's population, but we account for 31% of the mass shooters, right? You've heard that. Obama used to say it all the time. Democrats say it all the time. You hear it all the time. Anderson Cooper probably has it tattooed on his butt at this point. So John Lott says, what's your basis for that 31% number? And they pointed to a study by a criminologist named Adam Lankford. And, and the study is unpublished. This is an unpublished paper that Obama used, and then it gets repeated and regurgitated ad nauseum everywhere. And John Lott says, could I get the paper? I'd like to study his research. I would like to write my... Couldn't get it. Calls up Adam Lankford. Hey, Lankford, it's me, John Lott. I'd like to look at your study. Couldn't get the study. He kept asking. Nope, not going to give it to you. Couldn't get it. No one can get this study because it hasn't been published, but that doesn't stop people from quoting it. So John Lott took it upon himself to do his own study of mass shooters around the world. Now, think about this for a minute. How are you going to do this study? You've got to rely on public reports of criminal events around the world. You have to account for language discrepancies. You have to account for the fact that, that, that in the Solomon Islands or, or, or in Latvia or in Indonesia, they might not be, you know, keeping the same kind of records that we keep in America, they might not be publishing it in news reports in the same way on the Internet. And this is a worldwide study, right? And Lankford, he's not given any of the data up. So John Lott went ahead and diligently did this study over the course of the last 15 years, accounted for the language issue, accounted for the lack of reporting in these smaller countries. What did he find? Did he find that America accounted for 31% of the mass shooters around the world? Not even close. I'll tell you what he found. He published it today. He published his findings today. I'll tell you exactly what he found in just a moment. I am Larry O'Connor. I'm sitting in for Mark Levin. You're listening to The Mark Levin Show. Mark Levin. Larry O'Connor sitting in for Mark Levin today and uh, talking about a new study from John Lott. The Crime Prevention Research Center is where you can find that study, crimeresearch.org. He wrote about it in the New York Post today. Uh, This is this study that's constantly cited that uh, the United States accounts for 31% of the mass shooters in mass shooting events over the past 50 years, even though we account for less than 5% of the world's population. Well, it's just wrong. It's completely wrong. Uh, John Lott went and did the research. What do the real facts bear out? That the United States actually accounts for 1.43%, not 31%. 1.43%. That makes us 61st per capita in mass public shootings. That's behind countries like Russia, 
Switzerland, Finland, and Norway. Norway, the socialist utopia of Norway, Bernie Sanders' dream country. They have more mass shooters than the United States does on a per capita basis. You're being lied to, and it takes people like John Lott and Mark Levin to expose the truth. I am Larry O'Connor. If you want to find me, look at me on Twitter. It's Larry O'Connor. It's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Mark Levin Show.